0: Welcome to the 3D Lab. We're within our cliché offices, just outside of Paris, in France.
1: That was Matthew Forrester, an additive manufacturing manager from L'Oreal. And so
0: here we're running a load of machines where we do all of our prototype printing.
1: L'Oreal is an uncontested world leader in its vertical, one that encompasses cosmetics and all elements of beauty. Adapting additive within its prototyping, manufacturing processes, and even products themselves may hold a key to maintaining their long-term success in a rapidly transforming manufacturing and retail landscape. What is even more remarkable is that the majority of the introduction of AM into L'Oreal's DNA as a global enterprise has happened within the past two years. What can we learn from the swift progress of L'Oreal's adoption of additive manufacturing and its digital transformation that can help all of us better understand how 3D printing technology can positively impact industry and enterprise? How are the rules for this technology changing under the attention of manufacturing process innovators such as Matthew Forrester, who sees beyond the equipment manuals and material technical data sheets to what is truly possible from these evolving technologies? We explore this question and more on Talking Additive. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business innovators and allies to discuss the impact of adopting additive manufacturing. What changes for a business adopting additive manufacturing today, and what will be possible in the future? Welcome to our first episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches on April 28th, 2020 with three initial dynamite episodes. We will launch new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, and materials that enable professional designers and engineers to innovate every day. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. We are sitting down this week with Matt Forrester, who works at L'Oreal as an additive manufacturing manager and as an advocate on the technical side of additive manufacturing deployment. He has become a key evangelist for 3D printing in his field and works across industries to help others adopt this technology in their work and businesses.
0: We're using lots of different technology here, Uh, FDM, SLA, DLP. Generally, there'll be at least half of the lab running uh, at any one time.
1: While visiting Matthew Forrester at L'Oreal headquarters for the interview, he invited me on a tour of his highly active 3D printing test kitchen there. This is the tidy and trim home lab from which he evangelizes and orchestrates additive manufacturing projects across a large part of L'Oreal's global presence.
0: Most of the work here is new designs, which are being worked on by, by engineers, briefed by the marketing team. And it's the process of iteration to generate a physical model from an idea which could be created by a design agency or one of the engineers themselves who are are pushing through an innovation and they can print out a prototype very quickly here and test it out and use it to to sell their ideas
1: l'oreal has 40 production facilities across the world and 25 of them are now equipped with additive manufacturing technology and there are also 3D printing labs and machines in public spaces in many of their business centers as well, such as the Ultimaker to-go printers I noticed in the headquarters cafeteria, accompanied by instructions to encourage those grabbing lunch or coffee to make use of them.
0: Uh, just, uh, just under two years ago, we built, uh, we built this lab. Uh, we only had three printers uh, and now we're running uh, seven with maybe some, some more coming in uh, in the future. So it's, uh, it's growing very, very fast.
1: One of the reasons he wanted me to join him in his lab was to see a very special product for L'Oreal, one that had its start in this very lab.
0: So this is um, fleur de jasmin for for Lancôme, which is a metal perfume cage that was 3D printed. We started off with form prototyping. A lot of form prototyping was done within this lab. And then we moved to another technology, which is metal laser sintering technology to launch the first product last year. The beginning phases of the project ran through here. And that's the concept. This is an an area where we can kickstart, where we can experiment and then push out the the projects and bring in some real value.
1: This was L'Oreal's first launch of a product incorporating 3D printing. This perfume packaging was fabricated with laser powder bed fusion, incorporating the forms of jasmine flowers central to the perfume's fragrance. This limited series of 50 ultra-rare, ultra-luxury numbered copies is also a proud moment, a public acknowledgement of the extent of the efforts that Matthew and his team have accomplished in their mission to usher in additive transformation across L'Oreal and its design and manufacturing processes. In just a few short years, Additive has expanded from one option in a rapid prototyping toolset to a critical technology, making a difference behind the scenes with projects such as functional packaging prototypes, printed proto-tooling, quality controls, components of automation lines, and spare parts. But unlike many long-seated industry titans, L'Oreal has approached their high-velocity additive manufacturing on-ramping in the spirit of their brand's commitment to learning and transformation, fostering a community of peers in other industries for the mutual exchange of insights and knowledge. I sat down with Matthew Forrester in Clichy, France at the headquarters of L'Oreal. I'm gonna shift gears to your work here at L'Oreal and the exploration that L'Oreal and the field is doing in what is possible with AM? What is the name of your team within the company?
0: I'm working within the, the operations department. We're working on launching new products uh, onto the market. We're aiming at developing a beauty tech company, a cosmetic company with a digital uh, background and bringing new services to our clients. So what we want to do within my team is to reduce the time to market because our consumers are changing so much over the last three years. People want a new product. It has to be available now. It has to be available uh, wherever they are straight away. And so to be able to Attack that market, we need to be able to have a production facility which is very agile. It can be from the production development side, the tooling side, it can be from the way that we fill our bottles within our plants, and we could even imagine producing the parts which our consumers are going to buy uh, directly using our AM technology.
1: How long has L'Oreal been using additive manufacturing? And FFF in specific?
0: The first FFF printer was introduced in 1993 in the US, but it was a standalone thing. The rest of the the, the world was not following as quickly. Realistically, we've deployed since two years the use of AM technology within the group, which was um, a bit slow to start up based on the rest of the industry. But we've come on at a very, very high speed, the deployment which we've carried out now over half of our plants are using additive as well as seven prototyping labs which we've set up within the company for to help with the design phase we have around 40 production facilities of which 25 are are equipped with additive manufacturing technology
1: would you consider l'oreal at this stage leading in adopting additive in in this field
0: Uh, I think in in some domains, yes. I mean, we're pushing a lot on uh, materials research. We collaborate with a lot of external companies as well, not competitors, but we're working with all other types of industry to share what we're learning. One of the things I love about the technology is that it's so new and there is no playbook that we can just open and see which material we need, see which machine we need. We have to try it out and we're doing a lot of experimentation. And then to capitalize on that, we're sharing with other industries what we're learning. And in reply, they're sharing back with us what they're learning. So it's this creation of a community and a change in mindset because it it never used to be like that. But this new industrial mindset is that we're, we're pushing everyone together as a whole. And it's very inspiring to be part of that.
1: What kind of companies are these other companies? We're
0: working with uh, aerospatial, beverage, purely mechanical companies without giving any names. it's uh, yeah, We're trying to touch all industries because everyone has their own uh, design criteria, which are the most important for us. Working with carbon fibers is maybe not the the key design element, but one day I'll need their help. And then I know who I can call on. And I've been helping them with transparency, which we've learned from bottle design. So it's a a win-win. AM for me is a bit like a three-stage rocket. So you have the three pillars: prototyping, plants, and then production. So at the moment, we're we're very well deployed in in prototyping, and the plants are fully undergoing the the digital transformation now. Where we still have room to play is on the on the production side. Uh, what we need to do is fully leverage the, the AM aspects to bring value to the table because it's not the idea to put products onto the market just because it's cool but to really bring a service or a benefit to to our consumers.
1: In terms of your ideas, your your interests conceptually as you were starting to see a route towards producing things differently, uh, what element of AM makes the, the biggest
0: difference for your work? Ease of access, I think is the most important element that it allows everybody to be able to to have access to a technology from which they can express their ideas and physically manufacture for a reduced cost and for a reduced risk well so when i was in the factory we we used to have subtractive manufacturing there would be guys who would have an idea they would maybe do an iteration, and then if it didn't work, well, okay, let's just let it go. Whereas now we're in an estate where everyone can bring ideas to the table. They don't have to be a a top-end engineer or a a high-end mechanic. Anyone can bring an idea to the table if they can draw, and then we can iterate, iterate, iterate until we've got an awesome product at the end.
1: Matthew's image of the adopting of 3D printing within Enterprise as being a three-staged rocket, prototyping plants, and then production, stuck with me. I circled back to understand more about Matthew himself, his background, and how he was able to introduce additive manufacturing into these contexts within L'Oreal. So how did you first encounter 3D printing?
0: I'm always following manufacturing technologies. My grandfather had a machine shop when I was growing up, so I was doing a lot of subtractive manufacturing and learning about that. And so I'm always passionate about making things. And when I saw the technology come through that's when i thought you could really do something this is not just a quick flash in the pan it's something which we could actually uh, really scale up on
1: so when you were growing up did you just spend a lot of time in the machine shop
0: so it was making little toys and and things and then as i got a bit older it was following technical drawings to make little steam engines or compressed air machines. I guess it's the idea of being able to convert an an idea or a 2D drawing into something which is physical and be able to express an idea with a part or a machine that you've made and then if it doesn't work go back and change it until it does and, and be able to do something that no one else has done up until now. What
1: led you to join L'Oreal and move to Paris?
0: I never planned on joining uh, L'Oreal at the, at the beginning. I actually had the opportunity to do a A placement while i was doing mechanical engineering and the responsibility and the prowess of the engineering which is done within the company i discovered during that placement stage and it was absolutely amazing i really enjoyed it and so i decided to to stay on to do my thesis at the end of my studies and move into optimization of uh, factory uh, packaging lines which is where I learned about lean manufacturing and all of the processes. And then from there, I had the opportunity to come to Paris to work in the, the packaging development team, to working on designs for new bottles, jars. So how did you first encounter 3D printing? While I was already here working within L'Oreal, just following the maker community, seeing which machines come onto the market. So it was probably about seven years ago. It wasn't right at the beginning of 3D printing, but maybe a couple of years after the launch, they were still wooden or cardboard machines with wires hanging out. And that's It was, it was that stage that I got into it.
1: How did those machines and what they could do relate in your mind to the machinist tools when you were growing up?
0: It gave me an opportunity to to get back into that side of fabrication, but then living in Paris in an, in an apartment meant that I could do that without having to ship in an 8-ton lathe and then only be able to mix uh, circular parts. It just opens a, a, a new world of manufacturing where people can start doing it in their bedrooms. You spoke to the context. This was the kind of machining
1: and fabricating you can do in your Paris apartment. But what are some other things that fundamentally changed uh, how
0: you work in design? this is still the big thing and it's still the thing we're exploring today is the fact that instead of using subtractive where we take a block of material and, and we machine away to create a part we can start from nothing and, and and build up which brings its own challenges as well we have to think about support structures and the way it's manufactured but it also opens the door to a whole new realm of possibilities for mechanical movements. We can imagine a machine which is printed and with moving parts that comes straight out of the printer. Big advantage over traditional machining where we make part by part. We can imagine using several materials, several different ways of manufacturing within the same machine.
1: We're going to jump into how this came into L'Oreal in a second. But thinking of the early exploration of the material, how did you initially use fused filament fabrication, for example, in your work?
0: So at the beginning I used it as a fabrication tool for the things I did at home. So it was repairing parts and making new parts for, for cars, for, for, for the house. And then because of pushing this technology through and it becoming a hobby uh, from what I do in my, my daily life, I was able then to push that technology through within the company when there was an opportunity which arose.
1: And were you using other AM processes at that time? And also, did you bring any sort of milling or subtractive tools from your background?
0: No, not at that stage, because the problem is with subtractive tooling is that it's dangerous, it's heavy, and it's difficult to to set up and run. Although I would have loved to have a machine shop at that stage in my, my life, I didn't.
1: What about starting to explore the other AM processes? Did that happen as a course of you starting to find ways to try things here or were you already trying SLA SLS?
0: Not not at home but it within the company with testing everything. Test and learn is the motto of the, the company. So w- what we're trying to do is see what's out there. We're working with a lot of startups, new companies, new technologies. Some of it'll work, some of it won't, but it doesn't matter if you don't try it, you can't learn. So
1: If you were to bridge from the lessons, techniques, and strategies from your background, your machinist upbringing, your mechanical engineering studies, and your early apprentice work in this field, what are some elements that have really reinforced the way that you explore 3d printing
0: i guess the uh, the best thing is is to be curious and just to try everything the maker mindset is very important and it's something which i strongly believe in and, and it's something which within the company we're trying to to push to try new things not to be scared of putting something in the machine that maybe it wasn't in the instruction manual but let's try it and see if it works and see what comes out of it
1: This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's new 3D printing podcast. You might be wondering, why are we launching a podcast? And why are we launching this series right now? Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast was inspired by our company's mission to accelerate the world's transition to local manufacturing and digital distribution. How will 3D printing affect the future of manufacturing, engineering, and design? Through interviews with top innovators, partners, and allies, this series offers a chance to learn from those who have experienced firsthand the impact of additive manufacturing. Their key insights shape how we design our products and enhance our commitment to helping customers explore new and better ways to achieve their goals. Through these conversations, we hope to offer fresh insights into these new paradigms for the benefits of our listeners, our team, and our collaborators. And why now? Live events, trade shows, and seminars are not currently viable resources for leaders who are interested in adopting or extending 3D printing capacity. We hope that talking additive will provide an interactive avenue for our audiences to critically engage in the conversation around the impact of adopting additive manufacturing. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs all across the world that have remained open and fully operational during these complicated times. Enjoy our show? Subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And we'd appreciate it if you would post a review wherever you prefer listening. Join the conversation about additive manufacturing by subscribing today at TalkingAdditive.com. Speaking of these new paradigms, we pick up the conversation with Matthew where our discussion expanded to focus on the additive transformation currently taking place and what this suggests for the evolution of processes, supply chains, local production, lean methodology, and distributed manufacturing. When we started this conversation, you were saying that some of your first experiments with FFF were just trying it and making things in your
0: apartment. Yeah, that's right. And that's even how we managed to sell the project was parts printed out at home that I brought in the next day to show the marketing team that actually we can make a decision overnight instead of outsourcing packaging prototypes which could take a, could take a week or so even though the quality was pretty deplorable it was just the fact of having a physical component within their hands to be able to make a key decision for a product launch is so much more valuable than uh, at that stage the the surface finish but which we can now do internally as well but the time gain was a real eye opener and it's important as well because some people can see on a computer screen a 3d image and understand the concept and even Imagine it within space, but there's not so many people who can do that and giving them a physical 3D model, which is available quickly, we've got engineers who are making an idea in the morning and they're in the afternoon, they're already playing with the the physical prototype, this is where you get real added value and iterations before the tooling starts which is very complex, which costs a lot of money, which has a huge impact on the environment. The worst case scenario is that you get through to the end of a project and then it has to be modified because something's been forgotten because it wasn't seen in the prototyping phase.
1: What are some other things that you gained from having this digital process to produce something that you can test in-house to prepare you for how you're going to manufacture it?
0: We can manufacture now parts which will behave exactly in the same way that our final finished goods will behave which means that we can make i, I call it proto tooling so it's uh, prototype bottles or caps or, or things which will behave exactly in the same way as an injected part will it means that we can print them out right at the beginning of a product and for example we can run it down an existing line and see if the line can handle it or if there's modifications which need to be made instead of ordering a new line or ordering a new set of parts which might not necessarily need to be introduced we've also had a, a change around in the in the way of thinking instead of pushing for example environmental impact reduction we might try and lightweight part a component which could have an impact on the factory line so it might might make it more difficult to to run what we can do is make three or four propositions of uh, reduced impact parts print them out run them through the line and say okay well this one works the best so let's choose this one and then behind that we'll launch the tooling instead of launching the tooling and then um, pushing the adaptations which are needed to be done onto the plant
1: well that leads me to my, my next key aspect here so let's go back to the core concept of local distributed manufacturing so you brought up lean earlier so what does lean mean to
0: you so lean is only putting things where they need to be put so we use it a lot in manufacturing to reduce wasted time to reduce wasted resources it's something i learned about in my studies but then got to apply it once i i got onto the factory floor environment it's quite a passionate thing you end up doing a lean life and cutting things out of your daily life that are wasting time and things. So f- for us, it's really on the factory floor, uh, the greatest win where we can start optimizing, trying to reduce change over times, trying to improve operator ergonomics so um, we can make parts for each operator so they have their own personalized components, which means that they only have maybe one tool instead of five to, to do a job. And then even the tools themselves could be maybe tools that we flip over to to do a job instead of having two that we have to take off the line on bolt and then bolt back on again. It's things which don't necessarily need to be done with additive manufacturing. This is something I like to reinforce over and over again, but it's the fact that we have the the additive tools available and just in the office next door means that if someone's got an idea they can just try it out quickly get it out onto production and then if it fails we reinforce and then and then put it back out there again which is something we traditionally wouldn't do with a with a more complex subtractive machining generally what we use nowadays is is more offsite manufacturing so we would have to make a a quote get it approved by management, send out the Go project, then it would be made, get sent back to us, we test it, and then if it doesn't fail, you've got to go back through the the system again, which obviously is uh, demoralizing for the guy who's had the idea. I want to talk to you about this phrase, local
1: distributed manufacturing and local digital manufacturing.
0: The local distributed is something which is very interesting for us. Already on a on a small scale, what we've done is so not producing for our for our consumers, but producing for our plants. We ran a project where we we leveraged the power, the fact that all of our plants are now equipped with additive manufacturing. We needed to produce 300 parts, which would have taken several months with one printer. But if we use all of the plants printing at the same time, they can actually help each other out, which is a very powerful tool to reduce time to market make them more agile but then there's the human side as well so the plants are now seeing what the other guys are doing in other countries to improve efficiency and and improve the the lean manufacturing uh, mindset within their plants and say hey I can do that too and then they'll launch their project and they'll know that they've got the the backup of other plants to to help them manufacture their own components and that's the first time that this has been available this kind of cross-networking and and being able to manufacture for each other, I think is a very, very exciting concept of just purely from the human side of sharing knowledge.
1: We've been using a phrase internally that stems from the universe of lean concepts, making what you need when you need it, and then even extending that to where you need it. How do you and your teams talk about
0: these ideas? My grandfather used to use an expression and it was, you look at a job, and you see which tools you need to do it. And if you don't have the tool to do it, you make the tool, which is a concept that most people don't follow. They see if they've got a screwdriver, if they don't have a screwdriver, they'll hit it with a hammer. And that's the, not the right way of working. So it's, um, it's allowing our teams to develop their own tooling to get jobs done in a way which is safer which is faster and usually which is more ergonomically adapted for them as well. So for sure, they're making uh, lean improvements, which they could have made before, but they're doing them in a way which is a lot more efficient. Their lean production is even more lean.
1: So why is it more efficient to make a a tool?
0: Because you can iterate. And uh, instead of just going and putting a part on a line and saying, okay, it's, 80 percent there let's just run with it now it's okay so it's 80 percent there what do we need to do to to add another 40 percent of value and we just go back and back and back and and keep producing parts changing materials changing parameters until uh, the parts better or even adding functionality onto existing parts because the trap is always to to try and copy what was done before Whereas if we add value by changing the design or reinforcing the design, we can actually make things which are better than the parts which were originally in place. For us, we are undergoing the digital transformation within the group, but the trap not to fall into is just to use a technology because it's cool. Everyone's passionate about 3D printing and, and that's great, but we need to make sure that the technology that's being used is the one which is most adapted to the task which is in hand and sure let's try it out, let's try new technologies but then if they don't work let's try other ones and, and see what's going to give us the best results to give us uh, the best service for our consumers. What we want to do is give access to a lot of people to these new technologies and it's sowing the seed and, and seeing what comes from, uh, from this idea people can bring ideas from all kinds of places one of the things we we try and do here is we've put uh, personal printers around the sites and so although we're doing production manufacture there's also 3d printers where people can just bring in ideas they've got from home and print out so they can learn what is additive manufacturing what's the benefits that it can can bring and what's the different way of working so building working from nothing and and building up layer by layer Um, we've got guys who are working in logistics who are working in uh, human resources who generally have no direct contact with mechanical ideas and they'll be coming to us and saying okay i've used the printer downstairs and i have this question why don't you do this or why don't you use this material and uh, us the engineers who are who are kind of stuck with their nose in it Oh yeah, you're right. Like, wh- why why aren't we doing that? That's a really good idea, and that's another very exciting thing about the technology is, is is opening the mindset to to everyone who's who who can be touched by the technology.
1: That sounds like a possibility of growing the stakeholders in design and, and manufacturing.
0: Where do you see that? going ideally it's the the consumer themselves who's going to be going to be feeding back to us because our mantra is to put the the consumer at the center of of all of our products so my dream is that our consumers are helping us design our own products which we can then supply to them either directly or digitally or there's a there's a whole a whole world of possibilities out there but it's yeah i want to get feedback from our users
1: Let's talk about supply chain a little bit longer. How do you see the supply chain evolving when you have these kind of technologies in play, both now and you know in, in the future?
0: In theory, the dream is to have local manufacturing where we're producing next to consumers there's a lot of studies ongoing to see what is really the best way of manufacturing for the lowest possible environmental impact. It's certainly a possibility that in the future uh, we'll be producing locally or the consumers themselves are producing uh, within their own homes. Why not? It's uh, it's maybe a bit uh, Star Trek, but uh, maybe one day. So, well,
1: you produce more products than most companies and need to be able to load shift.
0: What we're seeing now is this huge shift towards a very unstable supply chains and so we might have a huge peak in production which we need to reply to very quickly and so these change parts have become key to being able to reply even if it's an existing product on the market if suddenly it takes off in a in a new country we need to be able to equip the lines which are maybe running a, a less popular product and be able to switch production onto, onto them as fast as possible. So it's, it's, it's absolutely key. Distributed. Now you, now you mentioned a little bit of
1: load balancing that you were able to do. You had to make a, a bunch of something so you had all the factories that had equipment contribute, so you made that set very quickly. Are there other ways in which you're doing distributed manufacturing, either sending G-codes to distant production facilities now that have, you know, 25 sites with additive?
0: So GCO is definitely the way to go, which we discovered because otherwise you can have too much variability on uh, materials, process, et cetera. What we do, which I find quite in- inspiring, is that I can go and visit a plant and uh, they'll come up with a, a problem and, and say we, we want to solve this but we're not quite sure how. We need to we need to draw the part. The other day I was coming back from a from a plant visit. I I drew the part in the train. I sent the I sent the file back by email while I was still in the train. They loaded the the part onto the printer, it printed over the weekend, and then on the Monday morning, they had their parts ready to to load up the line and and run at full speed production using parts that were coming off the printer, which were traditionally made in aluminium with a 12-week lead time. It's this flexibility and the way that everyone can pull together for a common goal, which is being brought on by the digital revolution, is very, very interesting.
1: What kinds of digital design software are you and and the various collaborators using?
0: So we use SolidWorks and Catia for for packaging design because we need a, a higher level spec of, of software. And then traditionally within the plants, we'll be using uh, some SolidWorks and uh, Autodesk Fusion 360. Uh, it's very easy to to learn as well because we're we're often starting from uh, from base level and building up uh, knowledge on uh, on 3D drawing. So it's very easy to. To learn, and then uh, and then they can experiment with different functionalities when when you need it, and it goes up to a, to a pretty high spec level. So
1: you talked about drawing a, a design on the train and, and and sending it. Where is a lot of that design happening? Are are all the various people touching this designing things,
0: or is there one group that's doing the dominant design? So design for me is the. Area of the industry which needs to evolve because at the moment we have all these people with ideas. We've now got the machines which are capable of printing these these ideas or or, or manufacturing these ideas. The the area where it's still bottlenecking for me is uh, is this transformation from an idea or from a paper sketch into a 3D model. It's getting a lot easier. So at the moment we have uh, bottle designs, complex forms are done internally within, within headquarters for, for every zone and then all of the plants are being trained to be able to draw uh, their own parts which are generally not quite so complex but it depends on the plant. There are some very complex uh, use cases but the idea is that everyone is, uh, is upskilled and being able to, to be able to fabricate their own, uh, their own parts.
1: So right now you talk about sending around G codes as being the most efficient way. So sending around files that already have the manufacturing instructions sort of encoded into them.
0: Is is that is your
1: unit the one doing a lot of the the slicing and preparation, no. or do you
0: find that? No. So they're, they're, that's being done on site. They, there's enough competence for for people to be able to to draw, so select material, select orientation, and print parameters, and then print where I the g-code is applicable is really if somebody needs to duplicate exactly what you're doing and they mustn't touch anything because even with the best will in the world we see that if we don't send g-code one of the parameters will change which can then have a direct impact on part quality or production. Almost every use case needs to be adapted in in some way unless we're talking about really basic elements like mobile phone holders or Tablet stands or, or things which can be duplicated for manufacturing uh, and production aids. The advantage is that they're that they're adapted and they're personalised for for each user. And so, I was kind of wrong in in one way. It was it was it's very good for inspiration. In another way, it's it, it they need to be changed anyway. And because of the way it's been drawn. Some guys will find it easier to redraw the part rather than than modify it. I think the short-term move should be towards more parametric modeling where we can it's very clear and, and we can have a set of values that we can modify and then generate a 3D file. That would help us to reduce the drawing time of, of components. And honestly, I think that would be uh, more useful than a, a warehouse where we're sharing purely files. Coming back to the three-stage rocket, so at the moment we're, we're in the stage two, so it's, it's really the, the local distributed is more for the plants, where we're seeing really the, the added value. And then for the consumer, it's a move to new services and uh, new business models. There's so many things that, that need to be tried out to see how we can bring value to the consumer, which is the third, uh, the third pillar with the production.
1: Speaking of movement shifts in way of thinking, one component, of what you guys were exploring what role polymer parts can have in a manufacturing ecosystem that traditionally is used to making everything in metal and everything to last you know ten thousand years do you have some thoughts about that area
0: yes so it's it's a difficult one to to sell already the use of the word polymer instead of plastic that helps a lot to, to sell the idea it sounds a lot more technical but it's it's something which is difficult but then we're proving quite easily that that A polymer part can replace at least aluminium very easily. And always what I'm asked is, uh, how can I make this in aluminium? And the question I reply is, why does it need to be in aluminium? And then it gets asked five times until we, we, we reach the mutual understanding that actually we could at least try it with polymer and, and, and see what happens. Because there's so many less constraints if we can, if we can just make it quickly in-house using uh, these machines which are, which are non-dangerous.
1: So what would it mean to the manufacturing ecosystem if, if more participants were comfortable using polymer parts?
0: there's obviously a a massive drop in energy costs uh, raw materials as well which which are coming out of the out of the ground to make a tooling especially if it's tooling which only lasts a year or two it's it's a shame to be to be damaging the environment in that way to to be extracting the aluminium obviously we're moving towards fully recyclable plastics or bioplastics for everything that we're that we're doing so for us it's a huge impact environmentally which is aligned with the the politics of the group that we're trying to to push forward but we're also finding as well that polymers can bring to the table so many mechanical properties that you don't have with metals non-scratch surfaces transparency there's so many that that you can list and we can even manufacture our own materials based upon a, a specification sheet which we can give suppliers which just opens the door to so many possibilities even working in in plastic manufacturer before the, the additive, additive manufacturing the idea of producing your own polymer was just a dream, unless you have uh, several hundred million tons of, of plastic to be made a year. And now we can, we can do it for, for 40 kilos, we can make our own material, which is uh, just amazing. It's an exciting time to be in.
1: Can you share one experiment that, that making your own polymer helps you to explore, even speaking generally? Yes,
0: so we've, we've developed a polymer to help with bottle transparency. So when we're prototyping bottles, we can print quickly and easily internally and see the fill level that we're going to get on the on the bottles without generating a pilot tooling or production tooling, we can already be making decisions and reducing risk over the product lifecycle.
1: So then looking into the future, you talk about the three stages far into the future. You, you've talked uh, about the influence and feedback loop of consumers.
0: What do you see looking down the road? I think the the huge shift we're going to see is towards a uh, personalization and customization of of components also the the localization of, of production i think maybe our grandchildren will, will think it's crazy that we used to produce in germany and the cell in france but we, we need to see how the industry moves and to see uh, as well what what is really the best solution because it's not necessarily the best idea to be shipping material all over the place and producing uh, say for every village within France but maybe for every city then it's worthwhile but there's a lot of a lot of ground which needs to be studied uh, first and during that time we're waiting for the machines to to kick into gear and and get up to to a speed which can rival traditional injection or ex- extrusion blow molding technologies, because we're not there at the moment, we can only uh, we can only target very small luxury markets.
1: Speaking of injection molding and tooling and blow molding, would you be interested in talking about uh, modular purchase to evolve traditional tooling to include additive components?
0: we have used additive manufacturing for the metal side of tooling for the last five years and and recently we've developed uh, injection tooling with with additive polymers which we're which we're using now for for the prototyping phase which is a great advantage because it's as quick as uh, as quick as 3d printing but then we can get parts off of off of the press which which are in the right polymer for for testing it's food safe it's it's consumer friendly so it's yeah i think this is uh, this is going to be another short term bridge manufacture which we can which we're going to push into uh, a, a bit stronger over the next few months
1: i called matthew a few weeks after our initial interview to ask about the conditions that made it possible for him to have such a significant impact within such a large and well regarded enterprise what made this speed of adoption possible
0: Sure. So one of one of the things with, that we we we're lucky with is the fact that we we started a bit later on the on the game, so we were able to make the most of um, the communities that were already existing um, and ask for ask for help. We had a lot of help from uh, material suppliers, uh, from Ultimaker as well for the FDM printing. When we asked uh, how we how we could do a, a certain application there were already business cases um, available uh, out there but then what we've discovered is that with 3d printing there's no real expertise there's no top-level experts uh, at the moment that we could have with for say uh, injection molding where there's uh, books and uh, and 60 years of experience uh, already out there so you become an expert very quickly within your very specific um, domain so it's it's just from learning by doing really and and getting out there and trying with the machines that we that we've we've learned things and and not being scared to fail as well because there's always a lot of failure at the beginning of um of uh, of learning how to print and what the what the parameters do and and what happens if we try this crazy new material within uh within the printers what what can it bring us
1: so dream with me for a moment uh pretend we have a time travel opportunity here. And we can go back in time and talk to you when you're first sort of pitching the case for doing more experimentation beyond rapid prototyping with additive manufacturing at L'Oreal. What advice do you wish you had given yourself at that point that would have helped you sort of zip through the process to get to the, the kind of comfort and confidence you have in the technology now?
2: I think looking back, the, my way of analyzing it would be that it's it's moved a lot faster than than I imagined actually because it took off for us just over two years ago. So yes, say three years ago I was printing horrible parts within my, my apartment and now we're running uh, labs across the world pr- producing thousands of parts every month and tackling industrial problems, prototyping problems, and and future production problems. I don't think old me would have believed that it could move so fast.
1: Now that you're seeing it moving at this trajectory, what are things that are surprising you even in the last couple of weeks or a couple of months that you think are going to shape how you approach additive in 2020?
2: Right. It's almost every day. We have new news. We have our internal community who follow follow, follow additive, scouring the the headlines because we're getting all the time new materials, new machines, new ways of working. We're seeing different industries being touched by the the additive bug, and so but everything's moving fast. Really, some years it's it's materials which move faster. Sometimes it's machines. The
1: only thing left, if you were to speak to the additive manufacturing industry itself, the OEMs making the machines, materials, software, and providing the technical aids to, to use this technology. What would you say to them right now to help uh, make this technology even more useful for you?
2: Okay, so the, the real bottleneck for, for us is empowering the people with this uh, capability of uh, digital design uh, and so my dream is the kind of pot of digital Play-Doh where someone can have an idea and just uh, shape it into their idea they have in their mind and create a 3D model, something which is as easy to use as modeling clay for people to, to generate their their ideas. At the moment, we're having to push a lot of resources into to training, so that these people can then 3D print. So if we can make that easier, it will really change the industry. I'm open to, to anything. Whoever's working on the, the latest crazy technology now, come and come see me, because I, I want a way of, of being able to transform ideas into physical parts. How how we get there doesn't, doesn't really uh, bother me, as, as long as it's as easy and, and painless as possible.
1: Thank you so much for meeting with us and sharing in the spirit of improving the whole field, things you've learned uh, that could benefit the entire ecosystem.
2: Thanks for the opportunity, Matt.
1: We hope that you have enjoyed our first episode for the Talking Additive podcast, featuring the remarkable Matthew Forrester and his quest to bring value to teams across L'Oreal by leveraging 3D printing in new and clever ways. In just a few short years, Matthew has gone from printing ugly parts in his apartment in Paris to introducing significant time and cost savings for production processes across a global top enterprise. For Matthew, the machines, materials, and processes stand ready to truly transform industry even now. It is the pathway from idea to CAD design sketch that is the key blocker today as we grow the stakeholders who can contribute excellent approaches to making a difference in how we design, create, manufacture, and distribute what the consumers are looking for in a fast-paced world where the consumers hold the reins to what we will produce for them tomorrow. I hope that we have all taken away excellent ideas from the swift progress of L'Oreal's adoption of additive manufacturing, even in this tiny snapshot of the past two years. I know I will continue to be inspired by the passion Matthew and his team bring to discovering manufacturing process innovations that are driving forward the evolution of this global brand. In our second episode, we will speak with Danielle Glasbergen-Benning from DSM Additive, one of Ultimaker's key partners from the Material Alliance Programme who will help us explore how we can transform project parameters into material requirements. Through this process, we will come to better understand how to leverage the growing list of high-performance additive manufacturing materials available to engineers and designers working today that transmutes 3D printing technology from simple rapid prototyping to a means of producing, more exactly, the parts we all need to expand the canvas of what is possible tomorrow. We explore these topics and more on Talking Additive. Enjoy our show? Subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode, and we'd appreciate it if you would post a review wherever you prefer listening. Join the conversation about additive manufacturing by subscribing today at TalkingAdditive.com. And remember that you can discover a wealth of information on Ultimaker's website, including free to download white papers, case studies, advice, and more. To start exploring, visit www.ultimaker.com. Thanks again to Matthew Forrester and the L'Oreal Additive team for joining us. Thanks also to series producer Hanna Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, and a thank you to Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound for the show theme and episode sound mix. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you again to our listeners. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's
2: impact on business.